Last time we were studying, we looked at some themes that are found connected to creation. There are two great things that God instituted at creation. Both of them are mentioned in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. One is the Sabbath, a day of worship and a day of rest. And the other is the institution of marriage. These two institutions have been and still are, even in the day in which we live, attacked and assailed and undermined. These both are under assault in the present day. From all different sorts of angles we could consider that, how the Sabbath is constantly attacked, whether it be through the preponderance of sporting events, or shopping, or whatever it may be, that takes the place of the worship of God, the Sabbath is under assault. The sanctity of marriage is also under great attack. And we've made certain statements already that I will not repeat concerning activities that God regards as unlawful and even unnatural, all of which are an attack upon Christian marriage. As some of the prohibitions in the civil law of Israel show us the high regard in which God actually holds marriage. And especially if you read Leviticus chapter 18 and all of the commandments there regarding that which is forbidden in terms of human relationships, you will know that God puts a high premium upon that relationship between one man and one woman in marriage. Something else that we mentioned last time was the advent of sin. The record of the fall of man. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, where the devil comes in the form of a serpent, and he first of all casts doubt upon the word of God. Chapter 3 verse 1, Yea, hath God said. Is that really what God said? Come on, that's not what God meant. That's the devil's attack upon the scripture. He casts doubt upon it. And then he just flat out denies it. Because as we come down to verse 4 of chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Whereas God had said, Ye shall surely die. Just go back to chapter 2 and verse 17. The last part of that verse. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What does the devil say? You shall not surely die. That's a direct contravention and a direct contradiction of the word of God. The devil's still in the business of casting doubt on scripture. He even uses some who call themselves ministers to do that. There are people who come to the scripture and they'll say, well that couldn't really happen. That's against the laws of nature. You can't really have a whale swallowing a man. So that's just a parable. Or you can't have Noah building a big ark with all the animals on there that, that would preserve the whole uh, of creation. No, that, that didn't happen. That's just a parable. And men can't walk on water because water is liquid. You can only walk on a solid surface. So when the Bible says that Jesus walked on water, that's probably not what really happened. What probably happened was the biblical biographer was watching and he saw 
Jesus walking on a sandbank just a little bit under the surface of the water and so it looked like he was walking on water. That's the kind of satanic unbelief that you will hear from some pulpits. That's what some ministers, so-called, will tell their people. They cast doubt upon the Bible and they flat out deny the Scriptures. And I could spend a lot of time dealing with that issue today. But here is a pivotal moment in all of human history in Genesis chapter 3. This is the beginning of all the problems of the human race, we might say. When that man whom God had created decided to go his own way. And in Adam, all men fell into a state of sin and misery, as the Catechism puts it. Man has sinned, and it was by one man that sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so that death passed upon all men, in that all have sinned. Romans 5 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15.22 tells us, In Adam all die. So what happened in Genesis chapter 3 has major consequences for the history of humankind. And the fall of man is spoken of throughout the Bible in various places we read of man's sinful condition. But from there I want to go to this subject today. And that is the subject of salvation and separation. Both of these come to the fore even in Genesis chapter 3. The fall took place, but we notice that the theme of redemption is introduced right away when the fall takes place. In Genesis 3 verse 15 you have a really important statement. Look at it with me. Genesis 3.15 The words of God to the serpent And I will put enmity That means I'm going to be Or there's going to be A situation where you are the enemy And someone else is the enemy Enmity Between thee and the woman And between thy seed and her seed That's the seed of the woman And the seed of the serpent It, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, that's the serpent, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now what is this talking about? Well this is what we call the proto-evangel. This is the first gospel promise in the Bible. This verse is actually the first mention of the promise of a Messiah to come. This is what God is saying here. The subject of redemption is brought to the fore. The seed of the woman. What's the seed of the woman? It's Christ. And this subject of the seed runs all the way through Scripture. You will see it in the life of Abraham. And we will notice that as we come to him. God promised him a seed. And when you look at the New Testament commentary upon that, it's not seeds, plural, it is seed, singular, and it is referring to Christ. This promise of the seed and the coming of the seed is actually the subject of the whole of the Bible up until the coming of the Savior at Bethlehem. 
The theme of redemption. The coming of the Redeemer who would bruise the serpent's head even though the serpent would bruise his heel. That's a reference really to the sufferings of Christ especially at the cross. Now, from this first promise of a Redeemer, Genesis 3.15, the subject of redemption, or salvation, if you like, runs right throughout the Pentateuch. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 contains a record of the Passover. And we're not going to go into all of the details here as they're presented to us, but basically what the Lord said was that every Israelite's house was to take a lamb, it was to be kept up to a certain point, it was to be killed, and its blood was to be put into a basin. They would take a plant called hyssop, they would dip it into that basin, and they would strike the blood on the lintel and the doorposts of the house. That is the overarching part of the doorway. It would have that blood upon it. So that when the death angel would fly over, he would not enter that house that had the blood upon it. But the firstborn of Egypt would all be killed. And that happened. And when you go to Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that there was to be also the feast that accompanied this. The lamb not only had its blood shed, but the lamb was actually cooked, it was eaten. And they were to take this meal and eat it in a, in a position of readiness. If you look at Exodus 12 and verse 11, he says, Thus shall ye eat it, here's the way you're to eat it, <clears throat> with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That means you're ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste, you'll eat it quickly. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now look at verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token or a sign upon the houses where ye are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. In other words, they were going to be saved by the blood, by the shed blood. Now you go to chapter 15 of the same book of Exodus and look at verse 13. This is part of the song of Moses in praise to God after the deliverance. And he says, verse 13, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth thy people, which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. A people who have been redeemed. Let me tell you that this bringing out of Egyptian bondage of the people of Israel, when they left Egypt to travel toward the wilderness and ultimately to Canaan, it is spoken of in the Bible as a redemption. It's part of God's redeeming work. And when you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord speaks to Israel in this way from verse 6. 
For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you. Think about that. Why did the Lord set his love upon them? Because the Lord loved them. That's the reason. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, notice this, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The bringing of the children of Israel out of Egypt is spoken of as a redemption. And this great theme of redemption, especially redemption by blood, and we'll say something more about that in a while, the blood of atonement by sacrifice is the great truth which runs all the way through your Bible like a scarlet thread. It's as if there's this red cord that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It is a cord of blood. That's the message that we have throughout the Scripture. For example, let me give you some verses. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, the importance of the blood is emphasized. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now just underline those words, whether you want to do it physically or in your mind. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It's not your works or mine that takes away our sins. It's the blood of atonement. It's that blood that Jesus shed that deals with our sins. And that, of course, is taught everywhere in the Word of God. You come to the New Testament. And, for example, I'm just picking out a couple of verses. In Romans chapter 3, Paul deals with the subject of human sin, how that it is universal. All have sinned and come short, are constantly coming short of the glory of God. The whole world has become guilty before God. It says that in verse 19 of Romans 3. In verse 23, you have those words I just quoted, for all have sinned and come short. It means they are constantly coming short of the glory of God. But notice this, verse 24 and 25, being justified freely by His grace. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That's a big word that simply refers to a place where there's a turning away of anger or a turning away of wrath. The mercy seat in the tabernacle was referred to as the propitiatory. It was a place where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled and that blood spoke to God. It turned away His anger. That blood is the blood of atonement. And so you read there in Romans 3.25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation You could say even a mercy seat through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And he goes on to speak of the fact 
that this excludes human works from the equation as far as our justification is concerned. It's by blood. The theme of redemption by blood, the blood of atonement by sacrifice, is, I say, that great truth which runs all the way through the Bible like a scarlet thread. One final scripture in this connection is 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, we're speaking about redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You weren't redeemed with corruptible things, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, the one who is the fulfillment, the antitype of the lamb whose blood was shed. He's the lamb of God that taketh away our sin. And so as previously observed, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, form a complete account of the origin and the development of divine redemption. This is what the central message of it all is. We see here the development of divine religion in the world. Divine redemption. We see the origin of it. And we see the development of it all the way through these five books. We could look, for example, at the whole Levitical system. What was that all about? Well, God had a system of priesthood and offerings. Those offerings in themselves never took away any sins. See, these people who will tell you, including preachers, that under the old covenant, people had their sins taken away by a different method, by keeping the law. That is false. That is not true. And the New Testament tells us that it's not true. Because we know about the whole Levitical system from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, that it was a shadow of which Christ is the substance. Let me read these words to you. The first few verses of Hebrews 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, and not, in other words, not the substance, can never, notice that, not, not, not even in the old days, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if they did make the offerers perfect, wouldn't they have stopped offering? Because they were already made perfect. But they didn't stop. They kept on. Why? Because the, the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And he's talking particularly about the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. That happened every single year. Why is this? Well, Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now come down a little further in that chapter. These are really important verses. Hebrews 10, from verse 10. By the which will, that's the will of God, we are sanctified or set apart for a holy purpose through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, that's Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. What is this saying? This is saying that the Levitical priesthood and all the offerings that were offered every day became obsolete when the Lord Jesus died at Calvary. That's why there's no sacrificing priesthood today. There's no such thing as offering a sacrifice for sin now. Because Jesus is the sacrifice. He has offered himself once and for all. Look at it again. But this man, Hebrews 10, 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Do you know in the tabernacle there was no place, there was no piece of furniture for the priest to sit down on? It's remarkable that, isn't it? He would come into the tabernacle, there was a brazen altar on which he offered sacrifices. Then there was a laver, a big basin of water to wash in. Then he would go inside the veil, the first veil. There would be a table of shoe bread with all those little loaves on it. There would be on the right hand side a candelabra, the lamps that were fed by oil that he lit. There was an altar of incense upon which he would offer that incense in front of the second veil. But there's no place to sit down. Why? Because the priest's work was never done. The priest always had work to do. He was always ministering. But it says of Jesus here very, very definitely, this man, that's Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Why? Because his work was finished. You know, on the cross, Jesus cried. It's actually one word in the Greek. It's not three words as it is in English. In English, it's, it is finished. But the word in Greek is titelestai. It simply means done. Finished. Completed. That's what Jesus said when he died on the cross. It's done. That means we don't need to be doing anything else to try to please God by way of sacrifice. In order to obtain redemption. And this is the story of the Pentateuch. As you look at the Levitical priesthood, the offerings, the sacrifices, all of that ritual in the tabernacle. It was all pointing forward to what Jesus would do. And so the rest of the Bible from the Pentateuch continues that story. It's the history of redemption. This is what God is teaching us all the way through the Old Testament, right into the New Testament. The need for redemption and the method of redemption. How are we redeemed? It is by the precious blood of Christ. This is how we have salvation. By believing in that. By receiving that. 
Jesus took my place. He kept the whole of the law of God perfectly for me in his life. Then he offered that life up in death upon the cross. A sacrifice to God for the satisfaction of our sins. So that we can say with the hymn writer, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. We can say that our sins are gone because they've been laid upon Jesus. He suffered on the cross to take away those sins. And all we have to do is to receive that. The word faith has been used in this way. Forsaking all, I trust him. That's faith. Forsaking all other trust but the Lord Jesus Christ. That's salvation. But then there's the subject of separation. And that flows out of the doctrine of salvation. Separation and the great accompanying truth of holiness. Now we have dealt with this somewhat already in the introduction to the Pentateuch. But let me go a little further with this today. God is a holy God. We learn this right from the very beginning of the Bible. God is holy. He is ineffably holy. He is indescribably and incomparably holy. There is none holy as the Lord. The scripture tells us this. And this holy God demands holiness in his people. And so the doctrine of separation is established as a biblical principle right from the very beginning of the Bible, from the beginning of the Pentateuch. Turn back again to Genesis chapter 1. What is the first thing that God did? Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, tells us that God spoke. God said. Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke light into existence. But not only did God say, but God saw, verse 4. God saw the light, that it was good, and look at this. And God divided the light from the darkness. The first one in Scripture to do anything by way of dividing was God. God is the great divider. And it speaks here of a division that God made between light and darkness. And this is not only true in the sense of day and night, the circle, the, the cycle of each day, but this is true spiritually also. All the way through the Bible, there's a division. And this division that's first mentioned in Genesis 1 verse 4 sets the tone for the rest of the biblical record. Here is a divine principle. God divides, God separates, if you like, light from darkness. Now notice how this applies spiritually. Turn over with me to the little epistle of 1 John. Just before you get to the book of Revelation... You have the book of Jude, and before that you've got three small epistles, all written by John the Beloved. 
He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John. And a preacher I know used to differentiate the two by speaking of the Gospel of John as Big John and the Epistles of John as Little John. So here we are in Little John, if you like, in 1 John chapter 1. And we read from verse number 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. Now look at this. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Okay? Now read on. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's with God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, that's us with God and God with us, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now notice carefully how that he mentions darkness and light. And when he's referring to darkness, he's referring to sin. Sinful living, that's darkness. When he speaks of light, he's referring to holiness. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. That's just another way of saying that God is pure holiness. In him is no darkness at all. And we are not to walk in darkness. We are to walk in the light. God, you see, divides light from darkness. And when we come to the book of Exodus there, the second book of the Pentateuch, we see that what happened in Genesis 1 verse 4, dividing the light from the darkness, made its way into God's choice of his people. Look with me at Exodus chapter 11. Again, this is a pivotal scripture because it shows us a great spiritual truth that is fleshed out in the rest of the Bible and that is the truth of election and predestination. That God has a people. God has a special people. We read those verses in Deuteronomy 7. We'll not go back there right now. But if you look at those verses in Deuteronomy 7, you'll see that God chose them. He said, I loved you because I loved you, not because you were more in number than any other people. God chose them for his own reasons. Now Exodus chapter 11, look at verse number 7. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. See that? Who puts a difference between the Egyptians and the people of Israel? It's the Lord. The Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. In the New Testament, there's a word that's used all the way through for the word church. It's church in English. In the Greek, it's ecclesia. It's a bit like the Spanish word iglesia. That's the word for church. It always means church. And it always means the called out ones. That's what the word ecclesia really means. The called out ones. People called out from among the rest. And of course, that's portrayed for us That's pictured for us in the book of Exodus 
as the Israelites were a called out company. In fact, the Bible uses that terminology that they were brought out by God's mighty hand. God put his hand upon them and brought them out. The people of Israel were a separated people. Again, Deuteronomy 7 makes that clear. And as a separated people, a people whom God had made a difference in, differentiating them from all others, calling them out from all others, they themselves were called to put a difference between the holy and the unholy. Just look for a moment at an example of that in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 10. Just finishing what the Lord had said to Aaron, that he wasn't to drink wine or strong drink and so on and so forth. He says, verse 10, And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. There it is. There's the division. There's the separation between clean and unclean. Between the holy and the unholy. Now, if we were to follow this line of study right throughout the Scriptures, we would see how totally clear it is that holiness and separation from sin is important. It's vital to the Lord. I know that we dealt with this to some degree before, but I just want to reiterate this. If you study Leviticus chapters 19 and 20, and we haven't time to read all those verses right now, but you study Leviticus chapter 19 and chapter 20, you see how important separation, how important holiness was to the Lord. I want you to compare two scriptures. One in Leviticus 19, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Then there follows all these different things that they're to do to flesh that out. What they're to do, what they're not to do. Because holiness is important to the Lord. But that very scripture is taken up by Peter in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Again, it means your manner of life, your demeanor. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Where is it written? It's written in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2. Again, you'll see this in Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 7. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, that means set yourselves apart, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. That was a command to Israel, that's still a command to God's people today. And such was the desire for holiness, for separation in his people, that God actually established special laws for Israel which would reflect this. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Leviticus 19, verse 19. The Lord says, You shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. 
Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. You see how God was all the while teaching the importance of separation. Even down to the very garments and the seed that they would sow in the field. They couldn't sow two separate types of seed together in the same field. You see again how that there were other laws for Israel that reflected this. In Deuteronomy 22, the Lord said in verse 5, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. In other words, a garment that's normally worn by a man shouldn't be worn by a woman. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Boy, we see that today, don't we? We see that all over the place. My wife and I went into a store not so long ago. There was a guy there. Whatever it was, he was wearing a skirt. And unless women were, have beards, it wasn't a woman. People say, ah, oh, it doesn't apply anymore. That's Old Testament. That's all Old Testament. Don't worry about that anymore. Don't, really? Really? We don't have to concern ourselves even with the biblical principle that is here of the separation of the sexes. I'll tell you that the concept of unisex is not biblical. It's not biblical. It's ungodly. It's God's will that men look like men and women look like women. That's God's will. It's God's will that men act like men and women act like women. That's God's will. The scripture teaches it. Oh, you're old-fashioned. Yes, I am. I'm biblical. I'm as old-fashioned as the Bible and I'm as up-to-date as the Bible. Thou shalt not, he said. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Think about that. There was to be a separation even of animals that were permitted to be yoked together. You couldn't have an ox and an ass, a a donkey and a cow in the same yoke in a field drawing a plough. God didn't allow that. There was a demand for a clear difference even in the dress of the sexes, as I have already indicated. By the way, you should study Matthew Henry on Deuteronomy 22.5. And a lot of Reformed people today would do well to study it as well. You see, God was inculcating within his people a principle for living. Separation from even the appearance of evil. Not just the doing of evil, not just the practice of evil, but the very appearance of it. And the broader principle of these statutes forbidding mixing in various ways is that God wanted his people to pursue purity, holiness, separation. And so Christians are thus taught by various statutes in the Pentateuch to pursue pure and godly character. We are to practice separation. Turn over with me very quickly. We're almost finished to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 44. And look at verse 23. 
Here's something that's enshrined as a principle in other portions of Scripture. Exodus, or sorry, Ezekiel 44, Ezekiel 44, verse 23. It says, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. That's separation. And when you read various portions in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, you'll see this. For example, Leviticus chapter 11. Or you could say even in Deuteronomy chapter 14. There are very clear examples of this. Deuteronomy 14, from verse 2. He says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. And then he tells them about all the things that they're allowed to eat, the animals that they're allowed to eat, and those that they're not allowed to eat. Separation. That's what it was all about. We talk about the unequal yoke, haven't we? The ox and the donkey or the ass together was not allowed. That's called an unequal yoke. The touching of the ceremonially unclean was forbidden. You were not allowed to touch a dead body, for example. Or you would have been ceremonially defiled. It was referred to as the unclean. Is it not remarkable that both of those, the unequal yoke and the ceremonially unclean, are referred to in the classic separation passage in the New Testament? Second Corinthians chapter 6. Yes, it's still in the Bible. From verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. See that? There's the ox and the donkey in the same yoke. Be not unequally yoked together. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? There it is again. There's the division. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part, it means fellowship, hath he that believeth with an infidel? That's why I'll not be part of any presbytery or any church affiliation where men are not believers. Where elders are not believers. Where it's a mixed multitude. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look at this other verse. Verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. And will be a father unto you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. There are other references to defilement and uncleanness that set forth the same vital principle. Holiness. Separation from the world and sin. Darkness. It is of great importance to the Lord. You know the reason why we have all different races in the world? You, you read about that division in Genesis chapter 11. Verse 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. You talk about globalism, there it is. Right there. The whole world of one language and one speech. I think that's a great situation, isn't it? That would be wonderful. Not according to the Lord. Because as you read on, those that tried to establish this one world religion at the Tower of Babel, 
The Bible says, verse 8 of Genesis 11, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So if you wonder why when you go to China, there's Mandarin and the other languages that they speak there, and you go to other parts of the world, they speak Spanish, and other parts of the world, they speak German, and so on and so forth. Here's the reason for it. God did it. Multiculturalism. Except they weren't all multicultural in one place. They're all in different parts of the world. See, God is a God of separation. And God is a God of holiness. It's reflected in so many ways in the scripture. May we remember this as believers, as those who profess the Lord's name, that we are a people who are called to separation. We are called to holiness. We are called to be, yes, different. We are. Because the Lord himself divided the light from the darkness. May the Lord help us to do his will for his own glory. Amen.